Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is Barry Baz Rice, a veteran of New Zealand's SAS unit, who after leaving the military signed up as a private security contractor. His firm, Blackwater, gained notoriety in the aftermath of the Gulf War, when two of their operatives were hijacked and killed in Fallujah. The months and years that followed saw a bloody and brutal conflict break out between Iraqi insurgents, private security firms and the Allied military forces. Baz was caught right in the middle of it, and in his new book, We Were Blackwater, he brings the horror to life in scenes that led to a reckoning with both the war and himself. It's a gripping read and a brutally honest one that goes beyond being just action-packed war stories and becomes a moving examination of the impact war has on the mental health of even the toughest soldiers. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Barry, welcome to The Reset. Thank you very much, uh, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Uh, your book, We Were Blackwater, Life, Death and Madness in the Killing Fields of Iraq. Um, a lot of stories have been told about what went on in the noughties in Iraq. But your story, the story of security contractors and, and the war that, you know, was played out with, with pretty brutal insurgents in those years, it is not, it hasn't really been told in, in this way from from a first person account as thoroughly as you've done it. First of all, tell us how you got involved in in the situation in Iraq. Well, I was a former military person in New Zealand. I was in the uh, Special Air Service, which you know you kind of get out and you think I want to continue in this this line of work. The trouble being, however, that there is no there is no this line of work called in the civilian type and uh, arena. Uh, especially sort of like anything that's going to pay what you believe your your skills and your your worth. Um, however, I, so I moved quickly overseas and I was doing military training or security training in different countries in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, and uh, close protection work. So even though I was, well, I was, I sort of steered away from door security or any of that other sort of type, which is. Which doesn't really, which wasn't what I was focused on, and uh, I just happened to be in the Philippines training um, when the 
recall it while the war was on, just started, and the call for contractors came out. Um, now, sort of back in those days, it was usually, if you're from the UK, 2-2-SAS, um, they had the circuit, which was basically doing missionary work in Africa back in the day. Wow. Uh, and this gave us an opportunity for those of us not from the UK or living in the UK to be able to um, apply our skills as we thought you know, we wanted to do, but you know, because of the Americans. So I, I applied to join with a company. They accepted me. I went over and then the first company I worked for, and then after about a month of working for them, I uh, moved to Blackwater. So just for those who don't know, I mean, the, the security firms that, that were operating in, in Iraq, this was a situation where as far as the Allied forces and, and um, George W. Bush was concerned, he said that the military operation, the main military operation of deposing Saddam was over. And that's what opened up. Yes. Okay, now we're rebuilding. So the army were doing one thing, like hunting Saddam and taking care of the big things. But security firms like the ones you were working for were supposed to be doing what they said at the time were just small jobs, right? That's what that's what it was billed as. Um, so what sort of thing yeah. were, were you yeah. told to expect when you first got out there? Well, we were expected to do other, I mean, one of two things. The only sort of, the two options that were kind of that security pro, uh, contractors were providing was um, mobile security, I, uh, convoys from yeah. bringing the supplies from Kuwait, Jordan, and bringing them uh, along the roads, or close protection, uh, static type security also for firms who were doing the rebuilding of the infrastructure uh, and also preparing for the upcoming elections. So we were, we, those are the kind of, the two roles that we were expecting either one of each to be expected to be doing. And so you're not expecting kind of full-on armed conflict. You're not expecting a war situation. You think this is going to be no, no. logistical security work with perhaps not much actual real conflict. That's exactly right. Yeah, we didn't expect us to be doing any frontline fighting. Uh, that was the military's job. We were there to support the, the rebuilding. So how did things develop? What was the point at which you thought this isn't how it actually is going to be here? Um, well, actually, not long after I got there. I got there in uh, November 2003. And um, it was around about then that the insurgency was starting to develop. Things hadn't gone, you know, swimmingly in the negotiations with the, uh, with the Americans. So the Iraqis said, OK, well, We've offered to fight with you. You haven't taken up our offer, so we're going to fight against you. Uh, so they were taking sniper shots at, um, you know, troops on the ground who, at that time, you know, you could walk around at the different cafes and markets and you were pretty unhindered. But then different uh, assassinations took place um, and then security contractors started getting targeted because we were a much softer target. We were easier getting shot at. Uh, there were more random uh, drive-bys, shooting scoots and... Basically, anyone that, that wasn't Iraqi was, was starting to get, you know, get a bit more attention. And um, yeah. so it became obvious that you were involved, you, you were going to be involved in something that was a lot more demanding and dangerous. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that happened in, uh, 
that really happened in April when our guys got killed in Fallujah. Mm. Um, so right, right before then, we were doing close protection for the uh, State Department because with Blackwater, we were looking after American interests. So that was generally State Department type contracts. And um, there, there were several branches of Blackwater USA. There was the Blackwater State Department contract, which was you had to be American vetted, American only could could uh, work on those contracts. And um, you were looking after people like Paul Bremer and the you know the State Department people in Baghdad. But they, they decided they wanted to spread out and, and put a footprint on the ground in many other cities around Iraq. So there was a bidding competition between the main contracting companies to see who was going to man those uh, those posts on the ground. Uh, we, I was part of what was newly formed sort of uh, arm of Blackwater called Blackwater Commercial. Now, Blackwater Commercial was made up of non-US or most, not not sort of mostly non-US. I was the only non-US person with that particular side of the company. But people who couldn't get vetted for the State Department contracts, people who would get vetted, but later on. So we were kind of like a, a, a stepping stone for people going to the State Department contracts or people who were in country and uh, not from the US and so didn't need any of those types of clearances. We ended up actually having to provide a lot of security for these out of post until the State Department got more and got more people on the ground. And until that happened, we were asked to fill in the gaps. Um, how things kind of changed for us in the contracting world, and then and, and basically everybody was, like I said before, when our guys got killed in Fallujah, um, just the ferocity and the uh, publicity that that caused changed the onset of how every contractor sort of thought about what they were there to do. And it kind of stepped us up from being contractors there to help support them to almost being mercenaries all over again, which was a word that uh, everyone was trying to avoid. We were the new security contractors, private security. No one wanted to say the N-word. Um, it was, you know, that, that doesn't exist anymore. However, we kind of took it that, okay, you have done this to us. Uh, we're going to take every opportunity to do this to you if you come our way. And that's how the spiral into madness kind of uh, started for everybody, particularly us in Blackwater. Do you mind if I ask you about the experience? Of, you know, uh, I know that you describe in the book pretty vividly about the death of your colleagues in Fallujah. You, you actually saw that happening live on a news report, didn't you? Yeah, I was in the team house. So I, I, I was just, I was a C1, so I was a team leader from the start. I was in a in a position of of being in charge of guys. I was in the office of our team house, and our housekeeper um, she saw it on TV. It was on one of the, the Arabic um, news channels, and uh, she let out this howl, scream, and uh, called for myself and one of the other guys to come and have a look. So we ran in, and on the TV there was was the the carnage that everybody's seen. If they've watched it, of course, um, the vehicles on fire, the crowd going mental, um, throwing sticks and stones and bashing charred remains on the ground. And it was it, it took a few seconds, you know, to sort of sink in as to what we were looking at. However, pretty quickly recognised vehicles as being the ones that we were we were using. Um, 
and I was through, I was familiar with two of the guys who had gone out on their run. Um, the sort of only hesitation I had was they shouldn't have been in Fallujah, as far as we knew uh, how they got there. That would come out later on. But then once it dawned on uh, sort of all of us that that was our guys, um, it's sort of, you know, it sort of the rot set in from there. You know, particularly for for me, and I think a lot of the guys was seeing the the happiness and the the uh, the way the Iraqi people themselves are celebrating. Mm. It was kind of like to be unexpected. You know, we mm. were there to help. As far as we were concerned, we were there to help. And then to see that, we weren't soldiers. And we all understand the rules of soldiering. You know, you, you do it to us, we do it to you. Hopefully, we'll do it to you before you can do it to us. But we were civilian contractors. We weren't soldiers. Uh, they were there supporting, um, you know, the rebuilding of the place. How it all happened, okay, that those decisions were decided in, these, in, in Washington, okay, and all around the world. But we were there to do a job. We were there to mm. help. You weren't part of an invading way. force. You weren't part of an invading force. You were there to help rebuild we after. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So now, it could so, it could be said that we were part of an occupying army, occupying force, but we weren't part of an invading force. No, not at all. Um. And so your response when you saw those harrowing images, your initial response was anger. And did you feel like? Yeah, it was, that, it was anger, that... sadness. And so, did you did you feel? Is it fair to say you felt like vengeful, like you you wanted to to avenge that straight away, or no? Certainly, certainly, we felt vengeful, um, and it was certainly a case of okay, this the gloves are off. You've done mm. this to us. We're going to do this to you. Um, where we gave you um, doubt, where we gave you um, the benefit of the doubt. Or, you know, we thought twice, we're not going to do that anymore. You know, if, if we see anyone who's acting suspiciously or carrying a gun, then you, you, you're going to get it. You know, if you, if you shoot at us, then we're going to make sure that's one of the last things you do. Um, we weren't going to go out and murder people, but we were certainly going to ride a lot harder. We were certainly not going to smile as much. And we certainly weren't going to let anybody with a gun sort of think that, uh, you know, we're, we're not here to, we were going to defend ourselves to the maximum of our abilities uh, all the time, and primarily our clients, you know, but we, we, we're no good at looking after a client if we did ourselves, so we were going to be doing that, um, and that's how a lot of the, the mindset started to change at that time. And, you know, you describe it in the title of the book as a state of madness, you know, a, there was a spiral from that moment into a state of madness was that on your part as well do you look back on your own actions and behavior and state of mind as being mad during that period um well the madness is also uh i i mainly sort of refer to that as as how the insurgency uh, started to ramp up i mean it wasn't just the insurgency okay there were gangs there were criminals there were everybody running around who were i mean the prisons were were emptied by Saddam, so you you had a, you had you had a killings, all sorts of stuff going on as you'd expect if you empty all the prisons. Um, we were 
sort of professional enough. So I think I was professional enough because of my, my, my training and my background to be able to keep it uh, overtly under control. Um, but inside, yes, there was definitely turmoil. Uh, I was also, like I say, a team leader. So I had to show control in front of my guys, uh, which I did. However, we, we all knew that... Um, you know, we had our limits and all this. And so we made these these certain rules. Well, I made these certain rules of things that we couldn't couldn't talk about uh, why we were – because in the evenings, what we would do most nights is we'd sit around this plastic table on the front lawn of the team house in Baghdad and we'd have a few beers. Um, never really got out of control, but we had a few beers to celebrate the fact that we'd made it through another day. Uh, some of the rules I instigated was that we'd finish by 10 o'clock. We would not talk about religion and we wouldn't talk about the reasons we were there in Iraq. However, just because we didn't talk about them didn't mean that they weren't there. Um, when, you, when you're talking to, well, especially for me, not being an American, talking about religion, and most of them are quite religious kind of people, and with the Iraqis, you would look at a jihad you know, way of wanting to fight against us. That could get a little bit messy. The reasons we were there, we were there to make money. We were there to look after a client. You know, so we didn't really need to talk about that. And we tried to finish about 10 o'clock because we had a job to do. Some nights when we didn't have the job to do the next day, yeah, we would unleash and, and, and drink like there was no tomorrow. And the reason I say we drink like there's no tomorrow because for a lot of guys there was no tomorrow, you know. Mm. So we, we celebrated the fact that we had made it through another day. Mm. And you say in the book that you didn't talk about things like family because – you didn't want to know too much about the life of a colleague because you actually actively thought, well, they could be dead tomorrow. And so what you felt if you got too close exactly. to someone, then the pain would be too bad if you lost them. Is that, is that your sort of, is that the policy of, of, yes. of most people in your position, soldiers in your position? Yeah, I believe it is. I believe it is. I mean, uh, you don't want to get that close to somebody. You always want that, that, um, a little bit of separation because because it makes it, it makes if anything happens to them, the mourning process or the guilt process is, is quite drastic. You know, I brought over my best friend from New Zealand, but hesitantly did it. He was mm. well skilled. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that if anything was to happen to him, there's there's the guilt of me that I've. I probably played some part in his in his death if, if that had happened. Um, so yes, there is definitely that, and we were all aware of that, and we were all sort of yeah, we, we we were best of buddies on the ground, you know. But I didn't really care if some so some was playing little league, you know, because I I didn't want to know. Mm. So there's a certain limit you have to limit your feelings when when you're actually in conflict. I can see that, but. You say in the book that, you know, when things got pretty crazy, you were still on a sort of three-month-on, one-month-off kind of schedule and that going home for your month off, how, yeah. I mean, I can't begin to imagine how you are able to switch out of one mindset and into another. What were those months at home like? Yeah, that was that was okay. I mean, that was the one thing you look forward to was, was going home. But I kind of compare it to a snake shedding its skin. So when we took off the clothes we were wearing for operations, you know, our work clothes, our, our guns, our vests and everything else, and we put our civilian clothes back on, 
um, you outwardly changed your demeanor, okay? Mm. But, but you, you never relaxed until you the plane got home. Now, there's a saying that we have in the military, you know, you're not there until you're there. I mean, plane leaves, doesn't matter. You know, you're not there until you've actually landed. Um, mm. and, and for me, I mean, a lot of the guys that was say, because we'd stop off in Dubai, would be when we got to Dubai or when we actually landed back wherever we came from, and in my case, uh, New Zealand. Um, and the readjustment uh, to seeing how the rest of the world is just carrying on as if nothing's happening uh, or something's happening, but they're thousands of miles away. It, it, yeah, it's, it's quite um, – it works on your mind a little bit. Mm. And the longer you stay there, like I was staying in Iraq, the more – it plays on your mind. Now, on your first couple of rotations, it doesn't really affect you too much. People want to know what you're doing. But it's kind of like uh, glass filling up. And you've got it okay at the top of the glass, but it's filling up, it's filling up. And so it's not too deep for you to scratch. And then you bring that rubbish home with you. You're bringing that conflict home with you. Where before it was well buried, now it's very close to the surface. How, how did it, when you say, you know, it plays on your mind, what sort of feelings were there when you say, did you did you resent, like, people living normal life back home and sort of almost being oblivious to the pain and chaos that was going on elsewhere? Were those the feelings? What sort of things were, were going on inside yeah. of your head? Um, well, I had an experience sort of quite early on, when, on my very first rotation, uh, where I witnessed um, this this small boy, um, and I mentioned it in the book. Um, so the hotel that we were staying at, uh, next to it was what I always thought was a bombed-out car park because it was all pancake together and everything like this. Um, and we would come back at night and we'd see this, this small kid. He would, he would have been 10 years old, dirty as all hell. I mean, he was covered in shit. He was just dirty. And he always reminded me of Gollum, like Lord of the Rings. He'd creep mm. out of the out of the rubble, and then he'd dart back in. We could never get close to him. Um, one day we came back, one night actually, sorry, we came back, and uh, I saw him tearing off strips of what I thought was just he must have found a loaf of bread or something or other. And uh, so I, I, I creeped up a little bit closer to him, and I was – you know, we'd put down bottles of water, we'd put down some food, and then we'd back off and hopefully he'd take it. I got close enough to see it wasn't a loaf of bread. It was a dried dead pigeon, and he was tearing off strips of meat and, and eating them. And mm. then he uh, scurried off back into the into the rubble. So I asked one of the Iraqi guards who I sort of befriended and he spoke a bit of English, and I asked him why he kept crawling on back into the rubble of the uh, car park. And he proceeded to tell me that it wasn't a car park. It was, in fact... The apartment block where he and his family lived and during the air invasion at the beginning of the war he got hit with a bomb and the whole thing collapsed killing everybody inside except for him he wasn't home at the time and he was ever since then and it was would have been at least two and a half three months later he was crawling back inside the rubble to be to try and find his family and this poor kid of about maybe 10 or 11 who had been doing that for the last three and a half months before sort of we got there and he was completely, he was, he was gone. He was mental. You know, he was, mm. he was beyond, beyond all help. And then I'd go home, you know, and um, I'd see the kids and, um, you know, we'd, we'd go out for lunch or dinner sometimes. And I remember very distinctly sort of my boys who were of the same age, uh, 
Mm. Um, and I got two sets of twins, two boys, two girls. Um, and my boys are fucking around and going with the menu. I'll have this, I'll have that, I'll have this. And I could feel a building in me, feel a building in me. And mm. um, I was separated in my, my then fiance, and my wife was there with me. And then I just snapped. And I said, you know, hurry up and choose some of the fucking menu. There's kids in this world who are eating dead pigeons. And I lost it. Mm. And, um, yeah, I could see on their faces straight away. They were terrified of me. They should, you know, my, my boys were terrified of me. And I, I, I calmed down almost immediately, but it was too late. I'd already done the damage, you know, and I, mm. I was sweaty. I was hot. And then I realized I had brought it home. They had no idea what was going on. They were just kids. Mm. And I had brought it home and, and, and unloaded it on them. And it wasn't their fault at all. They were doing what all kids do. And that starts to sort of turn. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. More into just sort of like everyday things, being around ordinary people. You know, I see that you start to resent them a little bit. You know, here you are walking around buying some stupid Gucci fucking handbag when there's someone over there who can't afford, you know, fuel, can't afford water, and that starts to sort of play on you, you know, and uh, you do become a little bit resentful. Um, and all you really want to do, all I really want to do is just get back there. You know, I just want to right. get back there, sort of get away get away from this crap and uh, back to a world I think I could understand a bit better. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing, isn't it, that in the end, or quite quickly – the brutality and madness of being in that, you know, war zone felt more real and like authentic yeah. than than you know your normal domestic life. I mean, I can I can see exactly why when you explain it, but it's a it's a it's a strange turnaround, isn't it? I mean, how do you ever recover from that? You kind of do, and you kind of don't. Um, you do, is in that you just have to accept that, that that's just the way things are. But you also kind of don't. And many sort of veterans and, and, and people who have been in that situation like myself. I, I live away from people. Even now, I live away from people. I don't like to be around people. Um, I, I'm sort of sensitive to noises. I'm sensitive to large, large groups of people. I'm sensitive to stupidity. Um, I mean, I go to London. I go to, the, I go to the US. I go around the world often. Not as often as I used to. But I... I do what I have to do, and then I'll go back to my hotel room or I'll go back to the house where we, we're living mm. um, and doing close protection. You you switch off 
and you become the person on the outside. That's part of the job. And that's mm. it's the perfect escape for me. I do it. Then I look at my watch and I go, oh, you know, the client, he doesn't go out late. I've only got five hours to go. I'm not going to be back in my room or by myself. You know, mm. you compartmentalize things. Um, there are different noises that I can't stand. Um, and, I'm, you know, we have dogs. Unfortunately, one is dogs barking, babies crying. I, I, it just makes my skin crawl. Women screaming, you know, mm. if there's a, an accident or whatever, someone's screaming. I, I just, I instantly just just want to stop them from doing that. Um, so I, I, I combat that by just isolation. You know, my wife and I live miles away. The only social sort of activities I really do these days is I play golf. And then that's a quiet game. You're only there with three of your mates and you know, not a lot of said. I, I don't go to, you know, birthdays or invitations of things. And if I do, I'm the first to leave, you mm. know. Um, and that's the price I pay in order to keep my sanity, as it were. And I don't mind that. I, I, I kind of enjoy it now. Mm. So you don't feel like it's like you sacrificed something this is just the way that you you choose you choose to live and it's what works for you you don't feel that you've had to sacrifice a, a, a your part of your life that you miss in response to what you've seen and the trauma that you've experienced the one thing i did sacrifice was drinking um mm. and that was that was probably the best sacrifice i could have done to be honest um and had i carried on drinking then um, I don't think I would have come out of it uh, with the level of happiness and sort of contentment that I have now um, you know sort of I, I was a typical in the UK you call them squatty I was a typical soldier shrinker you know everything was you know go ugly early um, if there are 3,000 beers left in the fridge it was oh my god we've only got 3,000 beers left um, you know let's go get some more and, and that was including Iraq. And and mm. during my time in Iraq, my drinking got, got more and more and more. I was trying to cope by using alcohol. Mm. And um, it's it's a uh, by using alcohol as a coping mechanism is just is just you uh, you're fooling yourself. It never works. Mm. I, mean, I don't know of anyone who successfully can do that. Um, particularly when you're doing basically. A job that can get you know you could be dead in the second but also when you're also running teams of guys and you've got people working for you and i'm trying to run a very important job and i've got the world's biggest hangover you know it's, mm. it's something something bad is going to happen soon so um through a different situation i was you know i was given an ultimatum give up drinking or you know sort of uh, uh don't come home you know, mm. and uh, and that in itself is, is quite an interesting story for, for me, if you're interested in hearing that, mm. it's uh, mm. how, how it all came about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sober myself. Yeah, I, uh, we talk to people who are sober yeah. on this podcast all the time, and I've, I've spoken to people with similar backgrounds to yourself, and I see how prevalent problem drinking is in your line of work for precisely the reasons you describe. But a lot of people it seems to me who've been through similar experiences to you do struggle to, to quit. So I'm particularly interested in how you manage to do that. 
Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, my my then fiance, uh, you know, when I came back from Iraq, we got married. Um, so yeah, she's now my wife, and uh, my PTSD was getting was getting worse. You know, I was bad dreams, sort of uh, short tempered, intolerance. Um, so I'd get drunk, and you know, then I'd be fucking stupid ass and you know i wasn't adverse to like the good old fucking fisticuffs in the pub mm. um you know because that was what i was normally that's what I, was a normal night to me you know that's mm. what we did so i did a job and i was in um i was in central uh, africa and uh, it was a pretty bad job but um the guys i was with we were drinking you know like there was no tomorrow the thing about doing civilian Security contracting or mission work, if you want to use that, is that if you are actually a, still in the military, but you're just wearing civilian clothes and you're getting paid civilian money, but you, you, you have to operate like it's the military. It's the only way that job can be done properly. Um, I was I was drinking more and more and more, and then I, I noticed the tone of my wife's emails was changing, and she was she was going, you know, you're drinking too much, you know, you better stop. This is getting out of hand. I didn't really. So I'd let, I'd look at the emails that I'd sent, and I I couldn't even read them. They were so you know. But the words that I could read were just abusive crap, you know. Like you're cheating on me. You're spending the money. The money we're making. You know. You know this. You're that. I was blaming her for a whole lot of crap, mm. and I can only imagine I must have typed them with one one hand over my eye and one index finger because how blind drunk I used to get. You know, so like a dunk 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 dunk. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I said she gave me the ultimatum. She said, you know, stop drinking or don't come home. And at that, that time, we lived in Canada. Um, and I said, yeah, cheers to that. I'll have a beer. And then, uh, yeah, thinking she was just, you know, she said it before, she never happened. So when the contract finished, she said, don't come home. And I went, no, you're kidding. And she said, no, I'm not. So when everybody flew out of Kenya, I was the only dick left standing at the airport. You know, with like, well, what do I do now? So I rented a, uh, I rented a cabin in uh, Karen, which is a suburb out of Nairobi. And um, for five months, I still drank a little bit, but I tried to fix myself up, mm. you know, and I waited for that hopeful email or call that she's taken me back. And it just never came. It just never came. And I was going, oh, fuck me, she, she's serious this time, you know. Mm. So I said, well, I've got two choices. I can carry on drinking and forget everything about my past and start a new life in Africa. Or I can fix, you know, my new life going forward, all right, and not repeat what I've done in the past. So I've got two choices. Now, coming from, from the SAS, you know, you, you like a challenge. You know, getting in is the easy part. It's it's staying in and, and being functional is the difficult part. So I thought, you know what, fuck this. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my life around. And I was looking for a sign, basically, um, you know, that I really wanted to do it. And I was in this in this cabin that was in this house that I'd rented, and I was shuffling around for something to read, and I, I found a book. Um, and the book was called Shantaram by. Um, Gregory David Roberts, which mm. I, I quote a passage in the beginning of the book. Mm. And I read this book and I, I saw it first and I thought, holy crap, this is going to take me forever. Um, and I read it and I read it so fast 
that I didn't want to, I didn't want it to finish. And everything he was writing, just the way he was writing, was really connecting with me. And when I did finish, I thought, you know what, I know what to do now. And so the day I finished the book was the day I, I stopped drinking. And wow. I haven't touched the drop since, and that was 13 years ago. I, I haven't touched the drop. Um, That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, the message I got from the book was, okay, because he had screwed up his life, and he was hiding out in, in India and, and doing all this. The message I got, I took from the book was, when life gives you the opportunity to fix the shit sandwich you've just given yourself, be smart enough to see it, be smart enough to take it, and be smart enough to act upon it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what I took out of it. And um, so I, I didn't drink. A few days later, I got an email. My wife wanted a ketchup. She came over to Kenya. Um, she stopped drinking. She didn't drink anywhere near like I did. But, you know, if, if one of us can has to do this, we both have to do it to make it work. Um, and 13 years ago, and I haven't touched the drop since. Did you and, have to go yeah. on? No, no please. Well, I was just going to say, did you, you know, once you'd, obviously I can see what inspired you, what your motivation was. And obviously, you know, you're someone who's built with a kind of willpower and a determination. But what else did you have to do? You know, did you, did, in, in order to cope with the things that you'd been using alcohol to numb out, yeah. i.e. your PTSD yeah. and, and I don't know what else. What did, what did you do? Did you have therapy? Did you talk to people? How did you change your life? No, there was no therapy, um, but you have to change your life. You can't, mm. you can't do it and not change your life. You have, to make, you have to make concessions and you have to let a few things go. Like I was, I was afraid that, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be boring. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to be the life of the party. You know, I'm not going to be the only one who only knows the chorus of a song because I don't know the verse. Um, you know, I thought, well, I can't do that. I've, I love drinking and it makes me more sociable. But then you have to change that. You, you can't be, I can't be around people that drink, say, more than an hour. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I don't go to pubs um, or clubs. But then again, I, I like an early night because I wake up early and I, I do all my work and around the house and everything like that early in the morning. I'm a, uh, I, I walk, uh, I, I play golf. I keep myself quite fit. Um, but yeah, I had to change my lifestyle for sure. You know, uh, I don't really think you, you can stop and maintain the friends that you have who still drink because you become the boring prick. You become the, the sober driver. And I'm never, yeah. I'm never going to be anyone's sober driver, you know. You, you get yeah. yourself drunk, you get yourself home. Um, you know, so I just stay away from it, and that's what works for me. Yeah. Um, and you feel it's a happier life this way. Oh. Again, you, it's not like, oh, I wish I was still out with the lads till late. You've you, no, It's opened your eyes to a, a better way of living. Yeah, not at all. I don't feel like I want to be with the lads uh, anymore. In fact, the friends that I have are true friends, you know, yeah. and it's quite funny. You, you lose a couple of things when you stop drinking. I mean, as you probably know yourself, firstly, tons of weight. <laughs> you now, you now fit pants that you didn't think you could. Mm. Um, and you lose the friends, you lose people who aren't really your friends because they don't understand or they don't want to understand. 
mm. but you keep the ones you do. And I will still often now get messages out of the blue from guys who I joined the military with 30 odd years ago saying, oh, I wish I could stop drinking, you know, and I'd say, yeah, you can. It's just that, you know, I can't tell you how or when it all happened to you when it happens to you. It happened to me when it happened to me. But, you know, you've at least got to understand that it doesn't come with you're just going to stop drinking and still be the same person because you're not. You know, I think you're a better person, you know, and uh, I'm definitely a better person because of it, you know. The, the quote that it, from Shantaram at the start of your book is, the choice you make between hating and forgiving can be the story of your life. Uh, tell us what that means to you. Uh, that more refers to the Iraqi people. Um, you know, do I hate the people who did what they did to our guys? Not really. Not really. Um, they did what they were going, you know, they did what any of us would have done had that the roles been reversed, you know? So can you live on, can you live hating people for doing what myself, I probably would have done if the roles been reversed? No. I mean, all you're going to do is give yourself cancer. You've got to, you've got to let go. You've got to forgive. Um, yeah, it may take a very, very long time. And I'll be honest, some people, there are some situations where you do not forgive them ever. But that situation, uh, particularly the Iraqi people, were, they didn't want that invasion. They didn't ask for it. They were, it was forced upon them. Um, and they were already living under very, very tight sanctions from you know the first Gulf War, the Clinton administration, everything else like that. People were dying from basic, basic illnesses because some jackass and... State Department or even in the UK somewhere said, that, okay, let's bond the water and the electricity infrastructures, you know, mm. which in itself you've just made yourself a weapon of mass destruction. So you've mm. caused the, you know, tons of diseases. So the very lie that they were going after the Iraqi people for, they were perpetrating themselves. And mm. then, and then, you know, just sort of, you've got to forgive the Iraqi people for doing what they did. And, and one of the, one of the ways I, I would sort of ask my colleagues, um, but I would say, you know, you ever watch that movie Red Dawn? Mm. You know, I'm talking about the original with Patrick Swayze and all that sort of character. And they'd go, oh, yeah, 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 great movie, great movie. You know, what they didn't understand was the insurgency with the Wolverines. You know, mm. they were just, they, they, we were the Americans, you know, we the invaders. They were just doing what they were mm. forced to do. You, you can't blame them for that. You know, and uh, so you can't hold the anger. Mm. You know, you can just hope that you get through it, you survive, and you hope that they get through it and they survive. You know, they were doing what any one of us would have done. Barry, um, there's a huge amount of like emotional intelligence in what you say and sort of wisdom. And um, it's the sort of stuff that, you know, very often I've, I only hear from people who've done a lot of kind of. You know, you, you speak to people who, who've done 12-step recovery or been through a bunch of, of therapy. And, and what's really impressive is you've arrived at a lot of these very sort of, you know, peaceful uh, conclusions just through yourself. What is it in you that, that's enabled you to sort of process everything you've been through in such a measured way? Then I, then I, I don't know the exact answer, but I do, I like to watch people. I mean, not in a pervy way. Um, <laughs> I do. I, I I observe people, and I like to read people. 
Um, and I'm a little bit, I think I'm uh, empathetic where I would, there's that saying, you treat people how you want to be treated. And I, I believe in that. Also, I think from my culture, being um, part Maori from uh, New Zealand, we have a very sort of tight spiritual um, belief in spirituality, and, and, and you know, we're a very aggressive culture. There's fucking, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you get a bunch of Marys drunk, and you've got yourself one hell of a bad night coming up. You know, and I think that's why <laughs> we're so good at rugby is because yeah. we're so aggressive. But um, you know, we also have a calmness, and we have a, we have we have a peacefulness about us where spirituality, um, nature, you know, you'd be trying to get back in touch with that. Uh, you, you have to have that kind of thing because if you don't, I think you wind yourself up. You're going to end up winding yourself up to almost where you explode. Um, you know, I, I can't really put my finger on it. I hope that's a good enough explanation, but I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm just lucky that way, you know. Mm -hmm. um just finally you know uh th this book is like i said at the beginning it's an untold story of the security industry and the private war blackwater in particular um had a certain amount of not notoriety attached to the to the name blackwater yes. what what would you really like to address you know what perceptions about what went on in iraq in those years do you think you would really like to redress with this book that we weren't the, 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 the crazed killers that we were made out to be by a lot of the left-leaning liberal, a lot of the left-leaning media, a lot of the people who once were backing George Bush and, yeah, this is what the Iraqis needed as an invasion, and then when it turned to custard, say, oh, no, well, we, we never backed it from the start. So let's look for someone to blame. And, and Blackwater, being the most prominent company, um, and we had the most assets on the ground. We had helicopters. We had everything like that. Um, we were the biggest target and, and the low-hanging fruit. I mean, the founder of the company, Eric Prince, he gets he gets slandered every time he goes anywhere. I mean, but the guy had a vision, and mm. nobody nobody that I worked with was a, a murderer. Uh, nobody I did anything that was close to murder. If anyone screwed up or they got a bit out of control, they were fired immediately, and I fired many people just for for sometimes minor infringements. Um, the killing of the, the Iraqis in uh, Nasir Square in 2007, if anybody bothers to look into the investigation, and if anybody knows the State Department and the Department of Justice in the US, like anyone who's worked in these kind of contexts, know if they want to pin something on you, they will. And those four guys who got you know, hefty sentences, jail sentences, if you look at the situation and a report and the investigation, it was it was flawed. It was it was made up basically. Mm. I mean, um, and a lot of people complained about how Trump uh, released them from jail. But if you watch some of the interviews with the guys, you can see that they were set up, you know, big time. The real perpetrators of the real murderers uh, weren't our guys. They were the Bush, the Cheneys, the Blairs. The Rumsfields, the ones who started this whole crap fest in the start. And what are they doing now? Making shit tons of money, giving, talking about how the Middle East is, painting pictures. You know, they, they're blaming the wrong people. They don't blame us. Don't blame Blackwater. Blame the people and go after the people that 
that really started this. There is no accountability for these people. Mm. There is only accountability for us on the ground. Yeah. You know? Nothing ever happens to them. You know, who, who, when was the last time the Hague investigated an English-speaking white man for war crimes? Never. Mm. You know, mm. it's, they've had a white man, yeah, but he's, he spoke Slavic. You know. Yeah. Well, it was been a black African guy. I mean, come on. You know. Yeah. So the hypocrisy is is, is breathtakingly horrible. But Blackwater mm. were not. Upwood was not a bad company. It was a great company. And, and everybody that, that I work with and who work for me, we are still in contact now. And we're, we're, we are a band of brothers. And we're very happy and proud of what we did. Barry, uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, uh, you know, it's an education talking to you. And the book is fascinating, really compelling, moving. And, you know, at times funny too. Uh, although it's a, a dark subject, there is humour in there too, as I suppose there always has to be in these dark situations. So I can highly recommend that. It's out now. Um, Barry, thanks ever so much for your time today. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Barry Rice and his excellent book, We Were Blackwater, Life, Death and Madness in the Killing Fields of Iraq, is out now. Thanks for listening, gang, and please consider subscribing to The Reset for more podcasts, newsletters and events surrounding mental health for men without all the bollocks. You can find out more at sandelaney.substack.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, be lucky, and don't let the dickheads get you down. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 